my peers and friends, even if you're working at a very highly paid job in a veneered institution, you still feel as a part of the meritocracy that you're running a race that you don't know where it's leading to. And you feel like your standing is constantly being threatened. Mm-hmm. even if by any objective measure, <laughs> you've won that race. And so we have a system where the winners feel like losers. We can reverse that mindset and have a sense that our future, and if we want to have children, their futures will be secure, they will be all right. I think that will just be an uplifting of our spirits. Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-renowned people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. I haven't taken a political stance on this podcast, even though, I mean, we're heading into an election year. Environment is a big issue. You know, I'm working to remove the wedgeness from environmental policy. Something I've been saying a lot lately is I want to see People look at environmental policy like we look at traffic laws. No one sits at a red light. You know, I think most people out there, if you're at a red light, even if it's 2 a.m. and you have an unfettered view of everything around you and you see that there's nothing around, I think most people would still stop at the red light, even if there's no cops around, even if there's no other cars around. And I don't think the people sitting in the cars are thinking to themselves, some bureaucrat in Washington is keeping me from doing what I want and encroaching on my freedom. I think they think, ah, there could be a kid around that I don't see and I don't, I don't want to risk it. And every now and then someone will cross a WL line to get around an accident or something like that, but they know I shouldn't do this. And I, you know, I don't want to get caught, but I also don't want to hurt anyone. And no one views red lights and WL lines on the road as partisan issues. And I would like to see environmental legislation looked at the same way that we, no one benefits from going through red lights. Yes. You have to stop sometimes, but we know that that helps traffic flowing. Anyway, I'm getting far afield. It's an election year. Last year, I heard Andrew Yang speak, kind of unpredicted. I got invited to this thing. He spoke there. I liked his message enough to read his book called The War on Normal People. I should say I listened to it. He's, it's his voice reading it. And I learned more about one of his main things, what he calls a freedom dividend, which most people call universal basic income. So I had never heard of UBI, or I'd heard of it, but didn't think much of it. In fact, I thought negatively of it because I thought it was some Silicon Valley trendy thing. But it turns out, Actually, it's been around for hundreds of years with proponents from all sorts of political places and economic views. So I listened to him on several podcasts until I felt that I understood what he was campaigning for and why. And it was enough that I talked to his campaign people about helping with their environmental platform. One of the outcomes was meeting today's guest, Jonathan Herzog. Actually, the way I met him was on 7th Avenue, about a block away from here. I was helping people get a few signatures and he was there getting signatures. And I thought, this is a politician, actually, this is democracy in action. This is someone actually doing stuff in my neighborhood. So I really like that. So I asked him to be on the podcast. So that's the context. Here's Jonathan Herzog. Hello, welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Jonathan Herzog. Jonathan, how are you? Great. Thanks so much, Josh. Good to be here. Glad to have you here and glad to see you again. So listeners who don't know, you and I first met on 7th Avenue 
I mean, I, we'd emailed before, but uh, you were canvassing for signatures. And I thought, this is democracy in action. Politicians aren't really getting out there and talking to people. And I felt like, I'm glad to see this. And I, I told you how I was like grabbing people to like sign the, sign the stuff too. You've been out there a lot. Yeah, well, thank you for your help. And yeah, we did meet in the, the wild, wild streets of New York City, gathering signatures. And it was, it was a delight. It was a nice multiple week slog that we made through together. <laughs> so it's done. That means you just told me before we started, we hit record, but what was the achievement? What was the result? Yeah, so we, we gathered 20,000 signatures across the state of New York to get Andrew Yang on the New York ballot. And I'm actually now doing this in a couple of weeks for myself in March to get myself on the New York ballot uh, for my congressional run. I'll link to your profile and so forth. Yeah. But I understand that you're following in the footsteps of great Harvard dropouts. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I mean, you had, I'm actually curious, was it a difficult decision for you to leave school and start doing this? What's like, what's the passion? What gets you going so much? If I'm reading you right. Yeah, for sure. No. Well, so I guess it approximately goes back to two years ago when I heard about this no-name entrepreneur at the time named Andrew Yang. <laughs> and there was a launch article uh, titled, The Robots Are Coming. And he laid out his vision and his case for the fact that we're going through this fourth industrial revolution, automating away the most common jobs. And he identified the real problems on the ground and had a real vision and set of solutions to move us forward. And I don't know why, but I suppose in part, experience and reading and delving into some of the Yuval Harari's work and people of his ilk, I was like, this is our guy. This is who we need to be our next president. He's forward and future thinking, doesn't demonize and vilify, and is just positive and optimistic. And so I said, I got to do all I can to get this man elected. Mm -hmm. And that's why I moved out to Iowa that year, just to make the case and, and beat the drum that humanity first is what this country needs. Yeah, it's, I have to say that when I first heard him, I, it happened to a place where he was speaking and I didn't really know what I was getting into. I was like, all right, I got invited to this thing and I thought, okay, I'll go check it out. And I was like, this guy's saying stuff that makes sense. He's not pandering. He's not, <laughs> he's not showboating. Yeah. And the more I looked his stuff up, the more I thought, like I, didn't, I, I had not heard of uh, what he would call Freedom Dividend, yeah. uh, UBI. And it, it, did you have an experience like that of like warming up to, cause you didn't know who he was. Did, did you know about his policies before him? So I had, I had come across loosely some of his work with venture for America. And to me, the proof was in the pudding where there's been a lot of commentary and uh, lamenting around where our human capital and talent is going into a handful of cities and into a handful of sectors and the rates of entrepreneurship are coincidingly declining. And here's a guy who actually built an organization from scratch. He went from zero to one to tackle that problem and to lower the barriers to entry, lower the activation energy for young people to go start enterprises in struggling cities. So I definitely had that primed in the background where I had the sense that this was someone who built and created and actually turned the vision into reality. So that, that was the background I had. I didn't know too much about UBI originally, the universal basic income, mm -hmm. but going through the history and reading and learning more about it, it just seemed necessary. And yeah, it just seemed like the correct next step. If you don't mind my asking, if it's not too personal, what was the thought process of, of leaving school? You was law school, if I, if I read right? And yeah, yeah. 
that's not an easy decision. I mean, maybe it was an easy decision. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it certainly wasn't easy. I think, you know, to, to your work and leadership on leadership, kind of meta leadership you're, you're engaged in, it was really inspired by Andrew's leadership, where all of the incentives were such that he should not have run in the first place. Here was a guy, you know, raising two young kids. One of them has autism. And there is no reason he should put himself through this gauntlet mm-hmm. <laughs> and spend most of his time traversing Iowa. But he literally went to all the folks who could have done something about this. And they kind of said, fuck off. <laughs> uh-huh. not, not our problem. Someone else will handle it. It's too thorny of an issue. We can't really be candid about the fact that education, education, education on its own may not suffice in this era. And so it was really the fact that he even did this in the first place. I mean, I went through all the same cycles of, well, why does it have to be be, be me? Why can't someone else go? Why isn't someone else going? Why can't someone else carry that message? (laughs) And then you realize that if not me, then who? Uh, If not now, then when? And it was really, I mean, really directly just thanks to him leading by example, because he doesn't, um, you know, ask anyone to do anything he wouldn't do himself. Mm -hmm. And a deep sense of urgency, where the politics of rage and of scapegoating are terrifying and really dangerous, in my opinion. And yeah, it it felt like the least I could do (laughs) and the most I could do simultaneously. Well, then you re-upped it. I'm now curious about the decision for you to run yourself, which feels, if I think about doing that, it feels very vulnerable and scary. But maybe you're like, it's got, sometimes I feel swept up in something that's vulnerable and scary and that makes me want to do it even more. I sense the smile that you have and like the, the joyfulness that you're speaking about it is you're probably the latter, but I'm not sure. Was it a hard decision for you to decide to run yourself? Yeah, very much so. And I think it's, it's interesting because it's always the tendency and the incentives around talking about these things and decisions retrospectively is to make it seem so natural and such a sort of one, two step process. But no, these are incredibly challenging, personal, and yeah, just really difficult choices to make. But it boiled fundamentally down to, is anyone else going to do this? The answer is no. (laughs) And if we can move the ball forward and do anything about it, then I felt I had to within my capacities, running in my home district. It's the only place I could run feasibly. um, And Simultaneously, again, feeling like you have no choice <laughs> because you have to, but also feeling like you have to make a tremendous amount of, uh, of decisions to actually put that into action. Yeah, I think of it as being called, it's like being called for something greater than yourself. That lack of a choice is like, I mean, what you're saying reminds me of when I start, before I started this podcast, when I first started acting seriously on the environment, not straws, but like, you know, I'm not flying, for example, and my, my listeners know about all this, that I thought it was going to be horrible. And I found that it was like, I challenged myself to go for a week without buying any packaged food. And I thought that was mean, going to mean bland and tasteless and low variety. And it was the opposite because vegetables taste better now and it's cheaper and it's more accessible. And when I invited a, a single mom from a food desert to come and try it, she was like, bring this up here. Teach us, come to our neighborhood and I'm going to have a potluck and you're going to show us. And what I'm getting at is that I thought, no, I've, I've got to share this because no one is sharing a joy. It's all deprivation sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And I thought, 
this is the way I thought about it. We need a Mandela of the environment. That's lacking. And I thought, well, if no one's doing it, I guess I'll do it. And I thought, who am I to be the Mandela of anything? And, but what else could, if that's what seemed the most important thing to be done, that wasn't, there's lots of important things that are being done. Other people are doing that well, but this was something missing of, of working with people's beliefs and goals and desires and dreams and hopes, not just obligation and sacrifice. And what else could I do, but do it. Yeah. And then once you start, the best thing I can do is do it as absolute best as I can. Right. And the way you're saying it makes me think of that. uh, Thank you. (laughs) No, I mean, that's, that's exactly the fundamental fork in the road, right? You know, is, is someone else going to handle the thorny problem or are you going to have to do it? And a lot of times in these collective action type problems where the incentives aren't there, but the costs are certainly there, no one acts. And so it takes, it takes you to do that. Yeah. I, for a long time growing up, I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if, if there was some pivotal moment in history and I happen to be the one who gave that generation's version of the I Have a Dream speech? I don't know if other people think that way, but I thought that I would like to be there if necessary. And then when I actually chose to start acting and realized I'm putting myself out there to be criticized, I'm putting myself out there to be scrutinized and so forth. And I thought, I bet, you know, I, I can't speculate much here. I don't know Martin Luther King. I never met him, obviously. He was before I was born, he was died. But I thought, I bet when he was given the opportunity, I bet he said something like, can anyone else do it? Please let someone else, is it going to have to be me? Oh, all right, it'll have to be me. Of course, then he does what he did. But I bet he wasn't grandstanding. He wasn't trying for that. And now I'm talking to you, I guess, about leadership and what leadership, how leadership comes to be. I think what you're describing, I think what is more often the case I mean, you can have someone whose father's a billionaire and gives you a bunch of money and with a lot of money, you can get elected in a lot of different ways, but I'm talking about a different model. I'd like to get into a little more detail. Like what do you, District 10 in New York, what would we do differently here? What would happen here? Yeah. So the 10th district is the west side of Manhattan and South Brooklyn. So basically from Morning Morningside Heights all the way down south, it covers about three quarters of a million people the world's financial capital. It also happens to be where one in six people uh, can't meet their basic needs, live below the federal poverty line, many living in squalor in, in public housing or on the streets. It's in many ways the microcosm, the extreme example that typifies our winner-take-all market, our winner-take-all economy, and what happens with the convergence of financial capital, human capital, and technology. So the goal is many of the challenges we face, climate change being top of that list, but the automation of our jobs, nuclear proliferation or uh, asymmetric warfare, what, what have you, these are all massive transnational challenges that are very, very, very difficult to tackle on the level of the individual or the city or the municipality or even the state. And so I'm running for for a federal office to represent the interests of that district, but in Congress. And so that's the body that writes legislation nationally. Mm -hmm. And that was the goal is to help bring the ideas of uh, the Andrew Yang campaign and the Humanity First movement across the finish line, actually passing it through legislation. 
So it's like, um, it's one of the roles that has to be done. It's not the, it's not the main figurehead role. And I, I'm in that district, <laughs> hence why we were uh, canvassing. Help me out here. Cause I, I don't, oh man, now I'm going to sound like, I don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> but I don't know too much about how like this level of politics works. Totally. Yeah. So on the most concrete level in the crudest of terms, if and when we pass the freedom dividend, the universal basic income of $1,000 a month for every American adult, mm-hmm. then one of the tangible differences you would see is an extra $1,000 a month for you and everyone in your family in our community over 18. So it would be hundreds of millions of dollars of extra um, investment directly into the 10th district in the city. And so if you think about whatever issue areas or nonprofits or religious organizations or community centers you care about around you, thinking about what all that extra investment and purchasing power could go to. So that's just most directly and crudely, literally cash money in your and everyone's hands. <laughs> but I think to me, it, it, this, this whole movement goes much beyond that on the sort of transcendent spiritual level where I think we're living in very precarious times where we vilify and scapegoat oftentimes the winners of the economy. And those winners happen to be concentrated in the 10th district alongside many of the losers in the economy. And so if we can lift everybody's heads up and reduce the overwhelming sense of scarcity and zero-sum mentality, I think that will just lighten our spirits and make us feel more capable of solving these um, larger existential threats like climate change. We can really galvanize around because the people around us and ourselves, we're not fighting for our very existence. And so I know so many of my peers and friends, even if you're working at a very highly paid job in a veneered institution, you still feel as a part of the meritocracy that you're running a race that you don't know where it's leading to. And you feel like your standing is constantly being threatened. Mm -hmm. Even if by any objective measure, (laughs) you've won that race. And so we have a system where the winners feel like losers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so if we can reverse that mindset and have a sense that our future, and if we want to have children, their futures will be secure, they will be all right. I think that will just be an uplifting of our spirits. Yeah, I can hear what you're saying. So I I happen to listen all the way through to um, Andrew Yang reading, uh, I think, The War on Normal People. Yeah. And he really puts that together I think in a very compelling way. And after I heard about UBI from him or freedom dividend from him, I guess what my way of really learning about it, which I recommend to people, I'm not going to ask you to go into detail because when I listened to him, I think on Sam Harris, or maybe it was on Joe Rogan, he went into a lot of depth and I felt like that was a really good understanding. And I, I'm going to say to people here listening, if UBI is something, if universal basic income is something you haven't heard of, then listen to a couple of those, listen to Andrew Yang speaking at length about it. Maybe it was Planet Money, or I forget. There's like, a, listen to podcasts of him. Yeah. And, and then let's get him on this podcast. <laughs> and the war on normal people and understanding UBI really made sense to me of his understanding seemed, it seemed in retrospect, obvious. And yet no one else looks at it that way. And so I hear what you're saying, part of, like, I hear what he was saying and that he really put together in a book that really, I found compelling. I'm going to switch to, so this is the Leadership in the Environment podcast. And is the environment something important to you? I know it's important to the campaign. 
for you personally, is it something that you act on? Is something you, that means something to you? Absolutely. I guess those are two different questions. It means a lot to me. I wouldn't say that I have taken much action, but I do feel that the ideas of of the campaign are, to me, the way I feel I'm acting on on climate change most directly. Because outside of personal responsibility, which is very important, I think one of the empirical facts that Andrew brought to the fore was that even the United States alone is only 15% of global emissions. And that to me just contextualized all of our discourse around even just federal policy, which is if we don't actually have a global policy for climate change and action around mitigating its worst effects, then any action an individual actor, even the United States on its own, won't suffice. So this to me feels like the most direct and impactful action I can take personally towards protecting and restoring and sustaining running for office and passing these solutions, not, not just the act of running, but actually enacting meaningful policy to, to change the direction of our environmental policy. Okay. And I want to go to, since you said you, you've acted, and I, I know a lot of people, they look at this through the lens of, is, can one person make a difference? But I want to forget about that for a moment. And when you've acted, what have you thought about that led you to act? I mean, sometimes it's memories or images or like, what, what do you think about when you think about the environment and acting on it? It's interesting. I think, and this maybe isn't ideal, but in the moment, if I'm making a, a decision, usually the feeling is guilt. <laughs> guilt uh, yeah. or shame. Like, yeah, I think that's, that's usually the emotion I feel if I'm making a decision of, you know, whether to turn off the AC, turn off the lights, those sort of micro individual decisions. Yeah, it tends to be guilt or shame. <laughs> so now I'm not, I'm only, I can only speak for myself, but I feel like when I feel, I've, guilt and shame come to mind for me as well. And when I think about it, usually there's some sort of moral value thing that like there's something good and there's something bad. And maybe I, it's easy for me to do the good, the, the bad thing, but I prefer to do the good thing or something like that. What's, and, and I have an image of like, what would happen if I turn on the air conditioner, I feel good, more pollution happens. And I kind of have to struggle with that. So I have these images of like smokestacks and, but more specific than but do you have the images or something? Is there something that guides your sense of like what's good and bad or what's right and wrong or something around here or what, what forms your basis of where the guilt and shame are coming from? Yeah, I guess the origin of morality uh, for me personally has, has many sources, but I think my Jewish upbringing certainly plays a significant part in that and the kind of mores and then values that were instilled in that upbringing. I think also being an American and having this notion of kind of national identity and being a citizen engaged and um, just having my, my fate tied to the fates of, of other fellow Americans. So there's definitely many, many sources of the morality and just family and the kind of modes of, of upbringing and values that were instilled just directly at home. Definitely a lot of different sources, but I think those are some some of the big ones. If I'm not prying too much, and don't answer anything that's like uncomfortable or too much, but like it sounds like something about how you were raised, uh, the family, the religion, that it was that there are tangible, specific things like specific values or specific teachings or specific um, experiences. I, you know, when I ask these questions, it's partly because I when I first started asking these questions on this podcast, 
I really thought everyone's going to have the same answer that I did. And I've never heard the same answer twice. I find, I think it's useful for people to hear what, that it's not the same for like people who grew up by the beach, they tend to have ocean type things. People who grew up in the mountains, they tend to have like hiking things. And, but sometimes it's, it comes from different places. And that's why I'm kind of curious. And I think I, I, this is like my favorite part of the podcast is like hearing this diversity of, of thoughts and, but it's all the soul, still the same air and water. Mm-hmm. Sorry. What was the, the, Oh, so, uh, were there specific memories or like, are there images or are there? Gotcha. Gotcha. Any particular images? Yeah. I guess we draw upon, you know, our own experiences, as you said, most directly with how climate and the environment affects us. And so I guess like water quality and air quality and having been in places where, uh, you know, you can't drink the water or you can't breathe in the air and you have to wear a mask. I mean, one image that comes to mind is um, being in um, Beijing a couple of years ago. And I think this is slightly unrelated, but one of the examples Andrew gives is, you know, if you want to prove someone, prove to someone who might be skeptical around climate change, you might take them to Alaska, you know, or show them the glaciers or, or, or whatnot. And if you want to take someone who's skeptical about automation, you might take them to a factory in Detroit, let's say. And so I guess in the context of, of the environment and, and of pollution, one of the most egregious examples that comes to mind that I remember mm-hmm. choking and not being able to breathe for days and weeks after was in Beijing. And I know I read, I think you swam across the Hudson. And I, yeah. I remember I did a um, biathlon once many years ago that also involved swimming in the Hudson. And I was, I was sick for, for, for days and weeks after as well, um, in part because the water quality is so bad. So I guess these are some, some images that come to mind. <laughs> if you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I invite you at your option. You don't have to do this because some people don't, but to think of something that you could do to act on that feeling of something of like how you felt with that air quality or something of how you felt with the water being that way. And again, I want to reinforce, this is not about fixing all the world's problems. That, that might be something that is important, but to think of something you could do to act on that thing, on that feeling of those images of maybe the, the quality of the water in the Hudson or the air quality in Beijing. And also that guilt and shame. In my experience, that acting, even if it's on something small, changes that guilt and shame into an enthusiasm. It's different for everyone. And most people, when I say this, they, they can't think of anything off the bat. And so it takes a bit of going back and forth if they're, if they're up for it. And this tip part I'll take out, but if, it's, if it doesn't work for you, we can edit it out. Oh, sure. I mean, there's a very easy example. This is sitting right next to me. Uh huh. So let the record show. This is audio only, but he's showing me a plastic bottle. <laughs> I'm showing you a very, very, very large one and a half liter plastic bottle, which I'm now going to drink from, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> which is a problem and not ideal. 
And I do agree with you. I think there, there's some part of my mind that rationalizes and justifies it in the context of the enormous scale of the problem of, of acting on, on climate. But um, yeah, I mean, this, this is a very direct example. <laughs> so it sounds to me like you would like to act on your plastic bottle use. Sure. And, and to anyone listening, thinking, well, what one person does doesn't matter. I'm not asking him that. So that t- put that on me, not him. But I think that, could we make it a smart goal? Like something that you do for a specific, a specific thing for a certain amount of time. And if you're up for it, to ask you how it went afterward. Sure. I mean, I have my reusable bottle in the back. I've just been in Iowa and New Hampshire and uh, traveling a lot. So this is a vestige of, the, of, the <laughs> of that journey. But absolutely, yeah. I'll, I'll get back to my, my reusable ASAP. What would the specific thing be? Would you be using a certain, below a certain amount or none? Or, and then for how long do you think it would take before? I mean, you can do it for the rest of your life, but I'm kind of curious if, and you, you don't have to, but how long it would take before you did it, before if I asked you how it went, you could meaningfully say, this is my experience. Well, in this particular instance, the biggest hurdle is washing that bottle. <laughs> that, is, that is the image to your, to your question around images. That is the image of my reluctance. So once we hit that point where it becomes so filthy, therein lies the challenge. Washing the bottle, the reusable one or? The reusable one, yeah. Okay, just to clarify, the separate one is not a plastic one. It's like a metal one or something like that? Yeah, yeah. And that one needs washing periodically? Yeah, I suppose. Don't you just wash it though? I certainly could and should. But that, that I know, that is the hurdle is <laughs> as ridiculous as it sounds. Well, I, I want the record to show a lot of people think that issues on the environment are, you know, we just have to make this new technology and that'll fix everything. But actually the barriers that I see from years of working with lots of people on this is much more this low level stuff of like, how do you do these small changes, these personal changes? The change may be small, but the hurdle, once you get over that hurdle, then that opens up the big ones. And if people don't focus on what actually, like no one's going out and saying the hurdle to me using, to avoiding plastic bottles is washing my metal one. <laughs> but that's, if that's what it actually is. It is. I predict, and I don't want to lead the witness here, that when we speak after this experiment, that you on your own will find things that you wouldn't have found otherwise, not because I suggested it, but because once you overcome a hurdle here, you'll say, oh, that hurdle was not a big deal. Something like that. My experience tells me that that happens. And that's part of what I'm trying to bring here so that listeners can see themselves in my guests. I don't want to get too meta here. <laughs> Are you going to go for, to make it a specific goal? Sure. And I find the more specific it is, the easier it is for people to do it. Is it going to be zero plastic bottles or some plastic bottles or? I mean, it'll be zero. It's a, it's a full-on switch. Again, the the challenge is introduced in the context of travel, particularly at airports. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I know this introduces a whole other set of, of challenges. Yeah, I mean, it's full stop. I have no need for plastic bottles. Okay. I- yeah, I do tell people sometimes that the two big hurdles here, now, there's, off, there's hurdles that no one can predict. And I don't suggest trying to foresee everything. But travel and other people are the usual things. Like you'll be somewhere and someone will say like, here, have some water and they'll hand you a plastic bottle and you don't want to be rude and not accept it. But like that sort of, the one thing I find doesn't work is to say, oh crap, I did it. Oh, well, I give up. That doesn't work so well. Mm -hmm. But other things, yeah, you're going to face it. Probably you're going to travel and you're going to be thirsty 
And the, I guess what the flights don't let you bring your own water bottle on. So <laughs> now you're on the other side and there's a water fountain in, in the airport, but what about on the plane? And now they're going to hand you a plastic bottle and you're like, <laughs> Oh wait, I'm on a plane. Does this count or not? I'm curious to hear what you result, how you work those things out. And I think, Here's one thing. I think the way to figure it out is not to try to plan and figure out everything first and then act, but to act and use that experience to figure it out, knowing that mistakes will happen along the way. So how long, if I have you on a second time to ask how it went, how long do you think it'll take before you've got that experience? That experience of? I mean, if I asked you tomorrow, it probably wouldn't, you probably won't have too much to say. Oh, I mean, yeah. Once, once those bottles gone and once I wash the reusable, which will be tomorrow, then problem solved. So how long after you make that switch, can I, if I say to you, how did it go? That you can say, you know, what, I don't know, whatever you'll say of what the experience is like going without plastic bottles. Optimistically, 48 hours. Really? <laughs> I don't know. Because <laughs> it feels like you won't hit that many problems then, by then. But- I sure hope so. It seems like a fairly simple switch. Switch back, rather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's actually interesting. I actually got this bottle when I was in Iowa. And speaking of the social pressures and social comparison as an important role in driving our decisions, it was because my friend and colleague was heavily judging me for my use of plastic bottles. So kudos to her. Uh-huh. <laughs> Wait, how did you get it back on the plane? Or did you take a, was there some tour bus that took you back? Or I thought you couldn't bring plastic bo- bottles of water on the... Oh, I just brought the... I, I checked in the empty, the empty bottle. Oh, so you just had an empty bottle. Okay. So would you be up for scheduling another conversation in about 48 hours and sharing how it's gone so far? Sure. Okay. So after we hang up, then we'll do that. This is probably, I'm reading that this is not like your usual interview. (laughs) I hope it's okay for you. I hope it's okay with you. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, that was the plan. The plan was to go back to the reusable. Yeah. I'm glad you actually, I'm glad you said that to go back because that was the second time you said it. And I wanted to say it the first time we originally didn't have a whole lot of water bottles that we would just go through all the time. We as a species. And now I like to think of normal as being not water bottle, but I think most people think water bottle is normal. Yeah. It's actually interesting. Um, we, in business school, I think we do, we did a case study or at least had a discussion around the origin of marketing of, of, of plastic water bottles. And I believe it emanated from someone from HBS originally, the idea that we should be able to sell anything. We should be able to sell bottled water, <laughs> bottled air. <laughs> and I think to me, this is, this is reflective, again, of a deeper set of structural incentives of commodifying what is a public good. And yeah, I mean, essentially charging and charging a premium for branding what should be readily and easily accessible quality drinkable, potable water. Yeah, it's really weird how when I was a kid growing up and bottled, this this is the 70s, and people were starting to sell bottled water. And we were like, that's some weird European thing. Why would we buy bottled water? And the marketers completely won on this one. They, They totally won. I mean, people now think that bottled water is safer than tap water. And, you know, outside of a few Flint, Michigans, it's not. And then once people switch, I find that, I don't know, it feels like if you, if they succeed in that switch enough, then it's very difficult to get back. And people start abandoning the public uh, infrastructure. It's, 
you know, sometimes this, what I consider a wrong turn, it's hard to fix again. It's hard to get back again. Yes. The privatization of public goods across the board, water included, is a serious, serious challenge. Although one caveat I might say is that some of the research around things like health halos or the sort of, I've noticed at least in in some contexts that taking action in one domain, let's say the use of reusable water bottles, sometimes gives people the license to be less conscious in other domains. Mm -hmm. So I think looking at the interacting effects on our climate impact is also really important. So I look forward next time we talk to hearing if this experience of changing your behavior ever so slightly changes your experience of these other things. I'd like to wrap up with a couple questions of if there's anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up, or if there's anything you want to say directly to the listeners. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, congrats on, on your work and, and um, pushing, pushing leaders and, and future leaders to make better decisions on the margins and improve their lives and take, take responsibility for their actions and their impact. I think it's, it's tremendous that you've, you've committed yourself to that vision. And um, yeah, thanks, thanks for being engaged and making this world a healthier, healthier place to live. It sounds, I could say the exact same thing to you. It's, I mean, you've described what I feel that you've done as well is to take on at personal risk or vulnerability, acting on something that no one else, I mean, the last people running for offices, but in this, with the campaign, with the platform that you guys are, are doing, I, speaking for myself, I like it. I thank you very much as well. So Jonathan Herzog, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. Jonathan mentioned that he saw that Andrew Yang didn't have to do anything. I would add that conventional wisdom says he shouldn't have made it past hurdle after hurdle, yet he keeps winning and winning and keeps making it to next and next stages. I think people really like what he's doing. If you haven't followed much about him, even if you support someone else, I recommend his book and his other podcasts, especially when he goes into more depth on UBI. I think his policies make sense. UBI, for example, has had centuries of support. Who knew? Well, everyone in Alaska knows because they have it. And there's lots of stuff about UBI. I'm not going to go into the details here. I also hope that Jonathan has a meaningful experience with his avoiding plastic bottles. So people in the campaign develop skills around acting that inform their policies and how they lead others relative to the environment and just in general through genuineness and authenticity. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.